the passage that we read today is from the Gospel of Mark, uh, and it's actually a passage that we've broken down into two chunks. It really should be read Mark 7, 1 through 23, but there is so much goodness in these two passages that I just had to break them apart. But then like the honorable biblical part of me was like, but it goes together. So next week we'll resolve a lot of what remains unresolved in this passage. But there is something in the first half of this passage in verses 1 through 13 that we really need to dwell in, we really need to see. And so uh, I hope you will uh, revel in what's in this passage with me this morning. Uh, I also want to say, more than usual, I am indebted to Tim Keller's work in this passage. And so if you listen to a sermon or read a book by Tim Keller and you see that I took thoughts verbatim, uh, all wisdom is God's wisdom, and (laughs) Dr. Keller will have grace upon me. But there's two uh, prominent themes in the gospel that return to the forefront this morning. Rejection and authority. Rejection and authority. We've seen these two themes recurring over and over in Mark's gospel. Uh, The religious leaders, for example, in chapter 3, they are rejecting Jesus. They're already conspiring how to do away with Jesus. And other people are rejecting Jesus, too. They're not alone in this. People are rejecting what he's saying. They can't handle what he's saying. But then there's others who are receiving Jesus, and they're marveled and they're astonished by the authority that he has. This happens again and again. And in particular, the authority he has over Scripture. And so these two themes come together this morning, rejecting Jesus and his authority over Scripture. And in our passage, Jesus begins to challenge the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. Uh, He challenges their view of Scripture because they're rejecting Scripture and they don't see it. Even today, the the, the topic of biblical authority is a popular topic. There's many writers who have made their living on writing books about what the Bible is, and in particular, what the Bible is no longer in their view. Critical books of the Bible are in top sellers frequently. Uh, And even news sites, they post articles on a regular basis trying to undermine the historicity of the Bible. Why is that? It's clickbait. They just get advertising. McLean's just ran the worst article in their history about Jesus. It was completely unverifiable by any scholar, and yet they ran it. Why? Because people are still interested about the Bible and its authority. And in particular, We don't want it to have authority as a culture by and large. And so these two themes we're working with today in our our passage, rejection and the authority of Scripture, we see them still working themselves out in our context today. I'm sure many of you here have your questions about the Word of God. How, How can we give it as much authority as we do? Why do we follow this archaic book? And so here's the big idea that I want us to take to heart this morning. Are you ready? The authority Jesus has over Scripture is trustworthy because he uses it not to burden or crush us, but to free us. The authority that Jesus has over Scripture is trustworthy because he doesn't use Scripture to burden or crush us, but to free us. So open up your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Gustav Mahler. I'm going to hit above my cultural pay grade for a moment. Gustav Mahler is born in... Uh, 1860, and he died in 1911. He was an Austrian composer, and he was the leading conductor of his generation. Uh, his music at the time was revolutionary. It sounded like this. This is just a, a clip of one of his things. doesn't sound that revolutionary, does it? Sounds like classical music, also known as boring music. But uh, I'm just joking. I like classical. Don't worry. I listened to classical all week just so I could have some credibility in this illustration. But as a composer, he led a remarkable revolution. He lived on the cusp of the 19th and 20th century. You see, in the 19th century, there was a style to classical music, the traditional style. And he was doing something new. He was doing something different. He was actually paving the way into what's now known as early modernism. It's very fascinating. He experienced this clash of tradition fighting against the emerging future. And here's what he had to say about it. Tradition is not to preserve the ashes, but to pass on the fire. Love that. The question when it comes to tradition is, what is its aim? What is tradition's aim? What does it pass on, fire or ashes? Think about our liturgy for a minute. The words that we say together week after week after week. Uh, Let's take the confession of sin, for example. What's its aim? What's it trying to do? The general words that we pray together should be specific for you. Perhaps specific things come to mind, maybe not in the moment, but in the moments following. But the aim is confession. The aim is to prepare our hearts to see our vast need for grace and forgiveness. The aim is to model what should become a daily practice in all of our lives. The aim is to pass on the fire. But if you're just saying the words and not actually confessing your sins to God, they do you absolutely no good. If the aim of tradition ever becomes, well, we just do this because that's what we do, we're passing on ashes. Our passage today is about a tradition that passes on ashes instead of fire. Our passage today is about what Mark calls the traditions of the elders. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're returning to the scene. We haven't seen them in the scriptures for a while in Mark's gospel, uh, but now they return with more scruples, and they see that the disciples eat with unwashed hands. Good Lord, no, not unwashed hands. Watch out. And now, you know, most of us, we think that's gross. You should wash your hands uh, before eating. That's just good hygiene. But what's the issue? Is it really hand washing? No, this is about authority. In the circle of the Pharisees, they had the traditions of the elders, which was a collection of interpretations upon interpretations upon interpretations throughout the centuries of interpreting Scripture. And 
This was a fence that they called the Mishnah that they built around the scripture to protect its integrity. But here's the catch. The fence was built because they actually believed scripture was far too ambiguous on its own. And so the tradition of the elders showed in excessive detail how you could find the intent of scripture for any and every and all situation you could ever find yourself facing. But in the circle of the Pharisees, it was actually heretical to read the scriptures without the tradition of the elders. You see what happened? That the tradition of the elders actually became their ultimate authority. They held scripture with very high authority, but they also held their tradition and their interpretations with equal, if not more, authority than scripture. Some even believe that when uh, Moses get, got the law on Mount Sinai, uh, he gave, God gave two laws. He gave the Torah and he gave the oral law, the Mishnah, the tradition of the elders. They found ways to justify following their traditions over the scriptures. They found ways to infuse their traditions with the same authority. And so what we need to understand is that when the Pharisees are getting all uptight about washing hands, it's not about hygiene. As Mark wrote uh, for the reader, they had rituals about washing cups and pots and even dining couches. You know, the Pharisees, they would go on to you know, claim, like this is about cleanliness and uncleanliness in a ritualistic sense. We need to be clean before God before we can enter his presence. But the fences that they were building actually became more about who is in and who is out. It was about who followed their ways and came under their authority and who was out. It was about authority. And many, many of their traditions went well, well beyond the intent of the scriptures. For example, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, only priests were required to wash before going into the tabernacle. This, this hand washing started with a single command for the priest, and it was a liturgical command. It made sense. When you're going to go and offer a sacrifice to the Lord, first you must wash yourself because you need to be clean if you're going to offer atoning sacrifices for the people. And it was just a foreshadowing of Christ who would be perfectly clean and offer the perfect sacrifice, and they missed it. They said, well, if he needs to be clean, everyone needs to be clean. The traditions of the elders took this and applied it to everyone and everything, all people, even couches, not a spot left unwashed. And so the Pharisees, they may never have articulated it this way, but their actions are telling. Scripture alone was not enough. It was not clear enough, and they saw it as insufficient. The authority in their lives is not Scripture, but their traditions. And their perspective in every way is contradictory to Jesus' own perspective on Scriptures. And just to be clear, it's contradictory to the way that our community views Scripture. One of the defining marks of Scripture out of the Reformation is its sufficiency. The other three are necessity, clarity, and authority. If you're wondering, you can look that up on your own. But sufficiency, what does that mean? It's because of how God relates to Scripture, because how God is personally related to Scripture, that Scripture itself is sufficient to know who God is and to discover his saving power in Jesus. 
It is sufficient. It is enough on its own to encounter God and his saving power in Jesus. And therefore, it's also sufficient to discover how to live a godly life that pleases him. Now, hopefully you're asking, whoa, wait, how does God relate to Scripture? That's the heart of the matter in this passage, and so keep that question in mind. Look at verses 5 through 8. And the Pharisees asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Let's imagine, and I know this will be very tough for us to imagine in Vancouver, that you're invited to go on a hike. And uh, you're invited to go see what people are calling the most incredible, beautiful, breathtaking, spectacular view ever. Sound compelling enough? Are you in? (laughs) Okay. Uh, You're given two resources. You're given two resources. You're given uh, a, a trail map and the very best practices to hiking, a very somber guide on how not to die on trail by Roger Revel. So you're given these two resources. But when it comes to these two resources, there's three people. There's trailblazers, guide keepers, and trail keepers. You see, the trailblazers, they just throw both of the resources out and say, I'll find my way up on my own. You know, they might stick to the path occasionally. They might craft their own trail at times. And they might even arrive at a great peak. And they'll think, this is it. This is incredible. This is the most incredible, beautiful, breathtaking view I've ever seen. But while it's a great view, it's not the view that was actually promised to them. Because if they had only read the notes in the map, they would have discovered that there is a single, difficult, and very narrow way to get to this promised view. They think they have arrived, but they haven't. That's the risk of being a trailblazer. Now there's the guide keepers. They look at the map, they see Roger's name, and they say, yep, let's stick to the map, but let's also study this book, this very bust practices two hiking. And you might be wondering why it's two hiking instead of four hiking, and these things can only be considered in retrospect, but the very best practice is two hiking. They can hardly traverse the trail without busting out the map. And I'm sure all of you know this person, right? Like you're hiking, and it's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second, let's check again. And, and sometimes this proves helpful, you know, but they have to stick to every single rule, every single best practice. They stick to the path, though, and they get near the peak. But the view promised beauty, not safety. And the ascent to the peak, it is so steep that you can't see over and see the view until you stand on the very edge of the peak. And then they remember a rule. Do not stand on the edge of a cliff. Instead, stand a few feet away from it. And they start to panic. Well, how many feet? One foot? Two foot, three foot, four? Like, how many feet should I stand away? And they can't figure out how to uphold the command. And you know what they do? I got close enough. And so they turn around and go back down. They come close, but they never actually arrive. 
Finally, there's the, the trail keepers. Uh, they stick to the map. They consult the best practices from time to time. Uh, but they also exercise wisdom and caution. And they're the only ones who will definitely see the most incredible, beautiful, breathtaking, spectacular view ever. The Pharisees are guide keepers. All of their traditions actually inhibit them from living out the scriptures and actually inhibit them from knowing who God truly is. The scriptures alone are sufficient to discover God's saving power, but they don't see it. And worse, they're God keepers who never made it to the peak, but claim that they have. And this is why in verse 6, Jesus says, hypocrites, you're hypocrites. You're playing the part. You're pretending to be something you're not. So Jesus, he pulls into Isaiah the prophet again, and he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In the circle of the Pharisees, those who hold fast to the traditions of the elders say all sort of godly things with their lips. They do all sorts of godly actions. They have lofty voices and noble sentiments. And on the exterior, they look very pious. They're doing all the right things. They look like good people. They look like the sort of person you think would know about God, but it is completely and utterly divorced from their hearts. It's a show. They're hypocrites. They've never seen the view that they're claiming to have seen. They're claiming to know exactly what God wants, but they don't know. They're claiming to desire to do what God wants, but they don't do it. They don't actually believe he can be found in the scriptures that their traditions are trying to protect. Which leads Jesus to say three just cut to the heart thing. Verse eight, you leave the commandment of God, and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 13, you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. When it comes to the scriptures, Jesus says you leave it, you reject it, you make it void. And to drive the point home, Jesus takes one of their current practices to task, the practice of Corban. Look at verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you, have, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. This is the practice of Corbin. The word means offering. Someone could take their money or their goods or their, their, their land even and say, I've dedicated this to God. It can no longer be used for ordinary use. They withdraw it, but here's the catch. Legally, they still retained control over it, so they could still use it however they please. The scholar T.W. Manson uh, puts it this way. A man goes through the formality of vowing something to God not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. Corbin is a way of robbing your parents 
and justifying breaking the fifth commandment. And it's particularly disgusting in the context because there wasn't some national health plan for the elderly. There weren't homes they could go to. They depended on their kids caring and providing for them. And here, the Pharisees have constructed a tradition in which kids can say, I'm not breaking the commandment. I'm giving it to God. Keeping it for myself, but I'm giving it to God. Think of it this way. You're a landlord. You have a tenant. You ask for rent. And they say, sorry, I've given the rent to God. Now, for some reason on that day, you're just feeling a little nice. And you say, you know what? My loss can be a sacrifice to God too. And so you go with it. Very strange, but you go with it. But then you see them spending the money however they please. What would you say to the tenant? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. You're playing the part. You're false. The Pharisees, their ultimate tradition is, uh, sorry, their ultimate authority is their tradition. They leverage it up. They're claiming this is passing on the fire, but it's ashes. It's a fire extinguisher. They're hypocrites. They're breaking God's laws intentionally and have crafted traditions to support them in doing so. But we might want to pause and consider for a minute ourselves. Are we prone to be like the Pharisees? Are we prone to be God-keepers who put a tradition or something over the scriptures? Do you have an authority in your life that you put over the scriptures that allows you to ignore what they're actually saying? Your authority might be a scholar or a philosopher who casts a shadow of suspicion over the scriptures. And it's okay to read that. It's good to study. It's good to ask the tough questions about the origins of scripture, but you read them and you quote them, and you place them over Scripture, and their conclusions become your conclusions. Their expertise becomes your resource. Their history becomes your history. It becomes your authority, and the result is you don't trust in the reliability of the Scriptures because you've taken the authority away from the Scriptures and given it to someone that you've placed over it. You don't trust in its sufficiency. It's a mistake, though because you still have an authority in your life, just someone you don't know. Or maybe you know enough about the scripture to know that there's just parts that you don't like. It's not modern enough. The Old Testament, no thank you. Okay, maybe parts, the nice parts, the Psalms where it's like, God is my shepherd. But the violence or the judgment or the wrath, no. While we're at it, let's leave out anything that's like repressive or restrictive about how we should live. And at the end of the day, you get to decide what stays in and what goes out. What you're doing, though, is becoming the authority over Scripture. It can't speak unless you give it permission to. And when you give it permission to, it can only say what you will let it say. So you've become your own guide over the Scriptures. And it's likely you're surrounding yourself with resources that support your interpretations or people that support your interpretations, but that little crew is becoming your authority. But I want to just be straight up. It's more likely, in my opinion, that all of us in this room are more prone to be trailblazers than God keepers. When it comes to Scripture, 
you're a trailblazer. You know, for some of you, when it comes to Scripture, you could just care less. To you, it's bizarre that you live, that we live by this book, that we devote, you know, 30 to 35 to 40 minutes of sermon time to it every Sunday. You know, you like the music, the people, it's nice, but why this archaic book? You know, you're carving your own path. And you're a good person, a nice person, a person who tries to be kind to others. And I'm not going to contest that. It's likely you are. You're probably a very good and decent person. But it's also true that you've arrived at a good view, but not a great view. You've settled and you don't even know it. Your apathy towards Jesus and the scriptures is robbing you of spectacular beauty. Sights that you can't even dream of. Alternatively, you love Jesus. You love you some Jesus. You just don't think you need the scriptures to know him. It's a me and Jesus sort of deal. Why you got to put scripture in on it? I know who he is. You think we're putting way too much emphasis on something that rarely helps you follow him. But if this is the case, you're in love with your idea of Jesus, not Jesus himself. Whether we're guide keepers or trailblazers, what happens? What happens? We leave scripture, we reject scripture, we make it void, just like the Pharisees. But what's the result? You miss the most incredible, beautiful, breathtaking, spectacular view ever. Because God relates to Scripture. Scripture is as intimate to God as his breath. First and foremost, when it is proclaimed and exposited, and then when it is read and inwardly digested, Scripture is the breath of God. And so if you leave it or reject it or make it void, you cannot have a real relationship with God. And you cannot have a real relationship with Jesus. Let me give you two reasons, because I realize those are pretty intense statements. First, you can't have a real relationship with God without the entirety of Scripture. Why? Because God can never contradict you or challenge you if you don't look to the entirety of Scripture. You can only have a one-sided relationship where you call all the shots. You see, a real relationship, it needs to be two-sided, and it requires adjustment. It can't just be like, you have to adjust around me, but I will never adjust around you. That's called abuse, and it's also unrealistic. If while dating Julia, you know, I was like, baby, I love you. And I see this relationship going somewhere, girl, and, uh, you know, I know you like my blue eyes. But look, I just want to be straight up about marriage. You got to do everything I want, and I won't do anything you want. So, woman, pick up my socks. Uh, that would be terrible. Like, that would just be an awful relationship. I would be single. Uh, <laughs> so, if you want a real relationship with God, He has to be able to be God. He has to be able to make you uncomfortable and challenge you with who He is. You have to readjust around him and change your thinking for him and adjust your life to honor him. And he can only challenge you and make you uncomfortable and even contradict you at times if you submit to the entirety of Scripture. 
and give all of Scripture authority. But second, you can't have a real relationship with Jesus without the entirety of Scripture. Why is that? Now, a quick caveat, like a really quick caveat. I'm not denying that Jesus can't save people outside of Scripture. I'm not saying everyone has to have a Bible study to find Jesus. Jesus can save people perfectly fine because he's the Lord of the universe. But that salvation will lead you to the Scriptures if it is found outside of the Scriptures in a book or in a moment or in someone evangelizing you. But why is it that we can't have a real relationship with Jesus without the Scriptures? Look at verse 6. It's a little phrase tucked away. Do you see it? As it is written. Jesus says this all the time. As it is written. Scripture is his core. He lives and breathes and bleeds it out. Think about when he's being tempted in the desert by Satan. Three challenges, three times. What does Jesus say? As it is written. Spiritual Attack responds with scripture. Whenever he's teaching and expositing the meaning of the gospel and why he came, what does he say as it is written? Later in Mark, when uh, Peter finally sees who Jesus is and says, you're the son of God, Jesus says, as it is written, the son of God must suffer many things. But most importantly, when he's dying, when he's bleeding, what happens? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. When he breathes his last, what does he say? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31. In his last moments, he didn't leave us with some new words, but old words, with the words of Scripture. You see, when you get into Christ's core, into his being, what do you find? Scripture being fulfilled and embodied and lived out. So you can't truly love Jesus if you're rejecting what defined him and made up his being. But a problem still remains. Maybe it's true we can't have a real relationship with God, a real relationship with Jesus without Scripture. The problem is, when we read the Bible, when we pay close attention, it doesn't make you feel closer to God. It doesn't give you joy. It makes you feel guilty. Because the problem is that Scripture is too challenging for us. It crushes us. How so? Virginia Stem Owens, she's a writer, and she taught writing and composition at a class at Texas A&M some years ago. And apparently she figured, I'm in the Bible Belt. Uh, all these people probably have read the Sermon on the Mount. And so she assigned the Sermon on the Mount uh, as a project, a composition project that they would analyze and ask people to write an essay about the Sermon on the Mount. And to her surprise, and to the surprise of most of her students, actually, almost the whole class had never read the Sermon on the Mount. And when they read it, they were appalled. The essays said things like this. I do not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Or, and I really like this one, the, th the things for asked for, the things asked for in the sermon are absolutely absurd. Not to look at someone with lust, not to scorn or despise anyone. These are the most extreme, unhuman statements I have ever heard in my life. Got an A. Who figures? Now, have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? I won't do a show of hands because I can read your minds. I know that you haven't. It's okay. Uh, I can't read your minds. Sorry. I just don't want to freak you out. But 
if you really, really listen to the Sermon on the Mount, like really listen to it, and then start thinking about your own life, and you take off the rose-colored glasses that say, this would be great if everyone did this, and you start thinking about how impossible it would be, you're going to look to heaven and you're going to pray, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount not going to make you feel close to God or give you an inner love and joy. See, the problem is that Scripture is supposed to lead us into this real relationship with God, but it makes us feel like we can't do it. And that's because we're missing something. Look again to the Isaiah quotation in verses 6 and 7. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What does God want? So easy for us as people to miss. We can say he wants us to do the right things for the right reasons. He wants us to keep the rules. Uh, He wants us to be good people. But that is not what God wants. What does he want? Our hearts. Our hearts. He laments that his people's hearts are far from him. The actions just show that their hearts are far from them. Pharisees had their traditions. They had their authority. But do you know what it did for them? It let their consciences off the hook. Sure, it was more rules than God ever gave. But it freed their conscience from feeling the conviction of breaking a commandment when they were breaking it. And it assured their conscience that they were right with God by keeping rules God never asked them to keep. What did the tradition do? No guilt with false assurance. What's the problem with that? God wants their hearts. Sometimes we should feel guilty. Sometimes we should wonder if we can be assured. God wants your heart. He wants your mind and your emotions, but also that central place in your life where you live and move and have your being. He wants that place that you keep to yourself, what we called last week the inner controlling mechanism. God desires our hearts, but we're too busy finding reasons not to give our hearts to him. In the same way as the Pharisees, we can deny that no one can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. We can uh, deny that no one's able to keep the law. And we we can work hard to push aside that sinking, weighty feeling aside and assure ourselves, you know, look, without Scripture, I'm a pretty good person. Look at all these things that I do. We want no guilt with false assurance. And our culture is quick to offer that. And if that's what you're looking for, you're not going to find it here. But here's a question. Last question. Why did God give us a law? Why did he give the Ten Ten Commandments? Why did he give the Sermon on the Mount when he knew we couldn't keep it? Because he knew that his son was going to come and fulfill it for us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What does that mean? Jesus is our ultimate trail keeper. He kept the path that we abandoned. He kept the path that we couldn't finish. Jesus is the one who did everything, and faithfully fulfilled all that the scripture requires of us. 
He didn't swerve to the left or the right of God's command, but walked that narrow path. He is the one who loved God without reservation or imperfection. He perfectly loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Whatever the Father asked, he did it. Because he loved his Father, and his heart was devoted to his Father and seeking his Father's glory and goodness. But that does not mean that Jesus came to abolish the law. Or that we're suddenly free from having to do what Scripture asks of us. But a lot of you in this room, you're highly educated Vancouverites. And uh, you might be thinking, hey, pastor, uh, a while ago in your sermon you said that a real relationship requires adjustment by both parties. That it needs to be a two-way relationship. So why shouldn't God adjust to us and put Scripture aside if it's fulfilled? You're right. God needs to adjust to us. Because it is a two-way relationship. God becomes human. One scholar says, if you understand who God is as the creator, becoming a human would be as appealing as us becoming slugs. He adjusts. He becomes human. He suffers. He bleeds. And Jesus fulfills the law, but he also bears the cost and the consequences of breaking the law when he broke no law. The law in in Deuteronomy spells out what a cursed life looks like when we break the law, and it is bad. Things will get worse and worse. Injustice will grow. Lives will unravel. Uh, Our sin will be less and less restrained, and we will hurt one another, and, and we will reject God, and our sin will overpower us, and we will ultimately die. That is the cost and the consequence of the law, and Jesus comes and he fulfills the law and takes the curse on himself, says, me, not them. So what? So we can have the blessings. So all the promises of God, this beautiful view of life and abundance and the eradication of injustice and evil, freedom from sin, eternal, abundant life, so that those promises could be ours when we don't deserve it. Paul writes it this way. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you want to know how God adjusts to us, look to the cross. You see that the authority of Jesus, it changes Scripture altogether. He reveals what Scripture is all about. In Luke 24, he, he does this awesome Bible study with his Uh, disciples, and he says, all of this, all of these scriptures, wherever you go, I can show you how it's about me. Because all of scripture is about him. That's why it is sufficient, because scripture is designed to reveal the one who is at its center. It's designed to reveal the beautiful promises of God being fulfilled in Jesus and given freely to us without cost. And when we see The authority Jesus has over Scripture changes the way we approach Scripture. He's passing on the fire to us. For example, if you read Scripture and you find a passage and you feel bad, you feel guilt because you're you're just not doing it. You know, like you read a passage like, man, my ox gored another ox and then we didn't cut my ox in half and, and share the loss. You know, I didn't do that today. Or more seriously, you know, like don't gossip. 
I gossip today. And you see that, and it sinks in, and you feel the weight of like, man, why can't I live enough? In Christ, you look at that, and you say, Jesus, thank you for convicting me. Thank you for showing me my shortcomings. I love you, Jesus, because you show me grace, and you don't count my shortcomings against me. You do not condemn me. I praise you, Jesus. Do you see how Jesus changes Scripture? When Scripture shows you how you're falling short, it's an opportunity for praise. Or you read the scriptures and you see a command. You say, hey, I'm doing that. I'm, I love someone today. I serve someone today. I bore someone's burdens today. But what do you do? Do you pat yourself on the back? Gold star? Christian Achievement Award? No. You praise Jesus. You say, gosh, I forget all of these commands 90% of the time. I didn't intentionally do these things. It's your spirit that has filled me and it's your grace working in and through me, fulfilling the law when I couldn't even keep 10 commandments in my mind. Whether we fail at following the scriptures or whether we succeed, when we see who's at the center of the scriptures, the sufficient person of Christ, all of a sudden our failures and our success don't matter because we're no longer condemned for anything we do. We are free to worship the one who has saved us and given us grace. Do you see the big idea now? The authority Jesus has over Scripture is trustworthy because he uses it not to burden or crush us, but to free us. And when we say, Jesus, you're the authority over Scripture, and when we align ourselves with a tradition that says Jesus is the authority over Scripture, the fire is passed on to us. And we get to see the most incredible, beautiful, breathtaking, spectacular view, the most beautiful view ever. But how do we see it? By keeping the trail ourselves? No, because Christ walked the trail and then brought that view to us. He brings it down so that we can see it. Why would God do that for us? Because he desires your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your heart to the extent that Christ bled out scripture for you. Does he have your heart this morning? Does he have your heart?